And as usual, we will start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. <coughs> Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa. During this four-week retreat, retreat, besides the practice of vipassana meditation, we have also practiced the four protective meditations. And when I introduced these four types of meditations, I have explained against what they protect. So tonight in this talk, I want to speak more generally about the protective power of the Dhamma. And I will include these four protective meditations. Um, briefly explain them. So the Buddha had said, the power of the Dhamma protects the follower of the Dhamma. This place, sorry, these words can be found in different places in the Buddhist scriptures. And the meaning is straightforward does not leave much room for what is being said. Yet still different questions can arise. For example, what is meant by the power of the Dhamma that acts as a protection? Or the question, how is the follower of the Dhamma protected from what or from whom is she, is he protected? Or the question, when or under what circumstances does the, the Dhamma have the power to protect? So today in this talk, we will have a look at these different questions. So I will talk about some of the areas where the protective power of the Dhamma becomes obvious and how it actually works on a personal, on an experiential level. One of the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, directly addresses this topic. And in that sutta, the Buddha uses the following analogy. There was once a pair of jugglers who performed their acrobatic feats on a bamboo pole. One day the master said to his apprentice, Now get on my shoulders and climb up the bamboo pole. When the apprentice had done so, the master said, Now protect me well and I will protect you. By protecting and guarding each other in this way, we will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. But the apprentice said, That is not the way to do it, master. You protect yourself, and I will protect myself. Thus, each self-guarded and self-protected, we will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. The Buddha then commented that what the apprentice had said was correct, was the right thing to do. And then the Buddha went on to say, protecting oneself one protects others. Protecting others, 
one protects oneself. So how is it that by protecting oneself, one protects others? Basically, it is through the cultivation and development of the four foundations of mindfulness that the protection comes about. And how is it that by protecting others, one protects oneself? And this is through the qualities of patience, harmlessness, loving-kindness and sympathy that the protection comes about. So first of all, let's go to the protection of oneself that comes about by practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. In other words, this means the protection gained from engaging in vipassana meditation. Mindfulness, sati, is a mental factor that is contained in various groups of dhammas. Mindfulness is one of the five spiritual faculties it is one of the five mental powers. It is one of the seven factors of awakening. And it is, it is also a factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the way that sati, mindfulness, is um, manifested, this is described as protection or as guardianship. So when mindfulness, when sati is present in the mind, then it protects or it guards the mind from the defilements. It protects and guards the mind from unwholesome mental states. So let's take the example of seeing an, an object and let's say that it is a, a nice and a pleasurable object. Could be a nice mountain view or a nice view on the ocean or it could be seeing a nice flower or a beautiful woman or a handsome man. And so when the mind is not guarded by mindfulness, then the visible object will be immediately grasped by the mind. Then within no time, the mind gets firmly attached to that nice, pleasant, uh, visible object. And so the mind does not want to let go of it anymore. Or if the object disappears by itself or if somebody else removes this nice and pleasing object, then you know one would try to get the object again. And for this maybe one gets involved in all different kinds of activity. And so then the mind can get caught up in unwholesome uh, mental states. And so then in this way we become um, the slaves of our uh, attachment or our desire, our craving. On the other hand, when the mind is guarded by sati, by mindfulness, then the defilements have no chance to creep into the mind. Or if they still have the chance to creep into the mind, then at least they have no free reign to do whatever uh, they want to do. In our example of seeing this nice and pleasing object, then the careful and 
attentive observation of that object prevents the arising of defilement. When mindfulness sati is really uh, strong, then that leads to the recognition that this is an object which is perceived as nice, <coughs> pleasing and pleasant. But then the strong mindfulness won't let the mind go any further. So it won't let the mind allow to get into unwholesome or negative mind states or reactions. However, sometimes mindfulness is not so strong and it cannot protect the mind from the arising of the defilements. But nevertheless, mindfulness then might recognize the arisen defilement uh, very quickly. And so being able to, or being aware that the defilement has arisen, and by being mindful of it, by observing it, by noting it, so then the defilement won't uh, grow any stronger. And through the uninterrupted mindfulness, awareness of this arisen defilement, it will not grow any further, but gradually it will weaken and finally completely disappear. So in this way, mindfulness serves as a protection against unwholesome mental states. If it's strong enough, it can uh, prevent it from arising in the first place, or else if it's not that strong but uh, st still present, then it can uh, recognize it early enough and so the defilement cannot spread like a bushfire. Some years ago I was teaching a retreat at the meditation center in Switzerland. And one yogi related in an interview that the day before anger had arisen. Her mindfulness was not strong enough to prevent the arising from the anger, but she caught it quite quickly. And she said the anger had been quite strong and powerful, but she was determined to just observe it, to be mindful of it, to note it. And she said it was quite amazing to see that by being mindful of the anger and noting it, that it was dissipating and then completely disappearing within a relatively short time. And she said for her it was like, you know, um, the anger was served on a plate, so there was this anger, but then by me being mindful of it, she said it was as if mindfulness was eating up the anger and so then the plate was empty. <laughs> so mindful awareness of an object, this is the highest and most reliable form of protection. Now let's go to protecting others. One protects oneself. So how can we protect others? Of course, um, <clears throat> we can protect others also by being mindful, visati. And besides that, it's through the qualities of patience, harmlessness, loving-kindness, 
and sympathy. I think it's quite obvious that with these qualities of patience, loving-kindness, harmlessness and sympathy, we protect others from harm and misery. So with um, patience, when we can be patient and um, tolerant, forbearance, we can avoid conflicts and quarrels with others. And when we abide in harmlessness, then we do not inflict injuries on others. We do not harm others. When our actions and our speech is suffused with metta, with loving-kindness, so we we show our sincere commitment to, to harmony, to, to friendliness, to kindness. And when we deal with other people, we show our sympathy by trying to understand their point of view. So in this way, with these qualities, we protect others by not harming them. Our considerate actions are like an umbrella that gives protection to everybody around us. And at the same time, we protect ourselves by not committing any unvirtuous actions, by not committing any unskillful, um, harmful actions. And so by doing so, we are not only free from the immediate results of our wrongdoing or our immoral actions, but we are also free from the later results of this karma, of these actions. So to effectively protect ourselves and others, we need some basic understanding of what is considered to be a wholesome action, what is considered to be an unwholesome action. So to be able to distinguish between wholesome, beneficial, helpful actions and unwholesome, harmful, immoral actions. At the end of this talk, I will uh, talk about it. Apart from mindfulness, and these four qualities, there are other aspects mentioned in the Buddhist teachings that can give us protection. And before we go into this, let us first have a look at this word protection. As we use the word protection, it implies protection from something. In the most general sense, it means protection from harm, protection from danger or injury, protection from fear, or it's protection from something unwanted, from something disliked, or from something frightening. A very basic aspect of protection is connected to the way we behave in the world. So this concerns our actions of body and speech. With our physical actions and our verbal actions, we affect ourselves and the world around us in deep and profound ways. We can either contribute to understanding and harmony, or we can contribute to conflict, quarrel, and suffering. 
we only need to read the news to see the devastating effects that people's actions have on others and themselves. So to be a decent human being involves to restrain one's actions of body and speech so that we do not hurt others, that we do not harm ourselves. But because it's not obvious to everybody on this planet what constitutes wholesome and beneficial actions of body and speech, so certain guidelines have been set up in many religions and spiritual traditions all around the world. And the Buddha proposed the five guidelines, the five precepts, as the minimum standard to live a decent and compassionate life. Most of you are familiar with these five precepts. You know, we chant the nine precepts every morning. It's basically the first five precepts, but with the third precept being Kamesumichachara, Veramanisikapadansamadhyami, instead of Abramachariya. So instead of to abstain from all sexual activity, it is to abstain from sexual misconduct. <coughs> So by keeping these ethical guidelines or these precepts, first of all, we protect ourselves. At the most elementary level, the observance of these uh, five precepts protects us from coming into trouble with the law. Because killing, stealing, adultery, bearing false testimony and irresponsible behavior caused by drunkenness, these are offenses punishable by law. On top of that, by following the precepts, this helps establish a good reputation among uh, our friends, among people we work with. Then at an inward level, following these precepts leads to a clear conscience. You know, even if nobody knows of our misdeed, still we won't have a clear conscience. We will be either haunted by guilt, regret, remorse, uneasiness, or restless mind. But the absence of guilt and remorse leads to another benefit, which in Buddhism um, is quite uh, important. With a clear conscience, we are able to die peacefully. We are able to die without fear or confusion. So by keeping the precepts, we are protected from the coarsest level of the defilements. This coarsest level of the defilements is called the transgressive defilements, like those we act out in physical actions or in verbal actions by speech. The level, the middle level of the defilements is called the obsessive defilements, and these are the defilements manifesting in the mind as thoughts, you know, the obsessive thoughts of greed or anger, jealousy, and so on. 
We are all very familiar with them. <laughs> and then the most subtle level of the defilements are the so-called latent defilements, which are there in the mind as a latent potential to arise, or they are like in a dormant state, and whenever a certain sense object is perceived, then such a latent defilement may arise, first become an obsessive defilement, defilement, and if it's very strong, it can manifest as a transgressive defilement. So in a way, the ultimate goal of the Buddha's teaching is to completely overcome all the defilements, you know, on all the different levels, the coarse one, the middle ones, and the latent ones. And so, to become free, completely free from these defilements, we must practice this path leading to liberation, to be free from the defilements. And the path is the Eightfold Path. These eight factors which can be divided into three groups. So a path consisting of virtue, concentration and wisdom. And the most fundamental aspect of this path is the group of virtue, uh, sila. And this begins with the observance of the ethical guidelines or the precepts. And so in this way, the undertaking, the following of the precepts, the five precepts, can be understood as a very basic protection on the way to complete liberation basic protection to the freedom from the defilements. In the case of keeping these precepts, it's very obvious that by protecting oneself, we protect others as well. By not harming them in any way, we offer them fearlessness. You know, others don't need to be afraid that we are going to kill them or to harm them. We also offer them trust. Others don't need to worry that we go and take their property, their belongings, that we steal, their possessions. Then we offer them harmony. You know, others don't need uh, to mistrust their partners of having an affair. Or we offer honesty and truthfulness. Then others don't need to be afraid or not, don't need to fear whether or not the truth is being said. And lastly, we offer clarity. Others don't need to fear don't need to fear irresponsible behavior because of drunkenness or being under the influence of drugs. The observ- observance of keeping the precepts, of keeping the five precepts, is motivated by two mental states, which are commonly known as the guardians of the world. And these two states are called Hiri and Otapa in Pali. Hiri is wise shame and Otapa is wise fear of the consequences of wrongdoing. Hiri, wise shame uh, in relation to wrongdoing. The Buddha called these two states the bright guardians of the world. 
And as long as these two qualities can be found in people's hearts, the moral standards of the world remain intact. However, if the influence of Hiri and Otapa wanes, then the human world can fall into unabashed promiscuity and violence. We know history books and newspapers are full of such incidents, stories of incest and rape, but also suicide bombers, the 9-11 events, the gas chambers in Nazi Germany, and so on. So when these two qualities are lacking, then the Buddha said, then the human world is not much different from the animal realm. So when we cultivate the qualities of wise shame and wise fear of wrongdoing, we can speed up our progress to liberation. And on top of that, we also contribute our share to the protection of the world. All forms of life are closely interconnected, interrelated. And so based on this understanding and recognition, we make Hiri and Otapa uh, our guardians of our mind. And so by doing so, we become guardians of the world. By protecting ourselves, we protect others. And by protecting others, we protect ourselves. cultivate Hiri and Otapa or to maintain Hiri and Otapa we need some restraint self-restraint because without a healthy degree of restraint Hiri and Otapa cannot exist if we give in to every impulse or desire, every input or desire of like or dislike. So if we give in uh, each time a desire um, arises, then we will surely engage in actions that are not in accordance with the precepts. And so to keep our precepts pure, we need mindfulness and wise attention to restrain ourselves when it's necessary, helpful and beneficial. Then in connection with the precepts, we have another activity that functions as a protective power. And this is the act of going for refuge. When a person goes for refuge, and in the Buddha's teaching, it's going for refuge to the Triple Gem, or the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So, by going for refuge, there is a commitment to accept the tripping Triple Gem as the guiding ideal of one's life and so then to bring one's actions into harmony with these ideals a person takes up the precepts so given the importance of going for refuge the question arises what need is there for a refuge you know, usually a refuge can be a person or a place or a thing giving protection, giving protection from harm and danger. The commentaries gloss the word refuge in Pali, sarana, with another 
another word meaning to crush. Explaining that when people have gone for refuge, then by that very going for refuge, it crushes, dispels, removes and stops their fear. So the protective power of going for refuge in the Triple Gem has to be experienced by oneself. It's difficult to satisfactorily explain it on a theoretical level. But here is the story of a Western monk who was attacked by robbers when he was on pilgrimage in India. So this Western monk was on pilgrimage in India with a layman who acted as his attendant. And they had decided to go to the different um, pilgrimage places in in India by foot, so walking from one place to another, like the Buddha uh, had done it. And so one day they were in a forested area between Nalanda and Rajgir. And people had told them to be careful, saying that it was dangerous out there in, in the forest. You know, bandits, robbers uh, were there. But the monk and his attendant, they were thinking, well, we are on a pilgrimage, you know, we have such a um, pure mind, we won't uh, be bothered by them. But then, as they were walking through this forest, um, they came upon a group of men, Indian men, who were cutting trees in the forest. So they had axes. And they immediately surrounded the monk and the layman. And they said um, that they wanted their money. and everything else. So the monk, not that the layman, wanting to be very protective of the monk, um, then started to fight with some of these Indian men. But, you know, there were more, and so he got knocked around, and finally he ran away, and some of the men behind the layman. So that left the monk alone with some other men, some other robbers. And, you know, they kind of told him to give what uh, what he had. But he kind of tried to say, no, I'm a monk, I don't have <laughs> uh, much. But then somehow they were indicating to him that they were going to kill him. And the monk understood a little bit of Hindi, and hearing the man talk in Hindi, he understood. So it was pretty unambiguous. And in that moment, a thought flashed into the mind of the monk. It was an advice that a Buddhist master had given you, had given him, before he had left for the pilgrimage. And the Buddhist master had told him, when you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, do not find fault with anyone for any reason. And so the monk then thought, okay, if this is what is happening if they are going to kill me. I cannot escape. I'm not going to fight these people and because if I would, they would win anyway. And so he decided, so I will just give myself to them. What he did next was he bowed his head and put his hands in Anjali 
and standing like this, he started chanting. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa namo and so on. So he was standing there chanting that waiting for the axe to fall on his head. But nothing happened. And then he looked up and saw that the man who was actually holding the axe over his head, he was still standing there and he could not bring down his axe to kill the monk. <laughs> and then the monk, he got a little bit cheeky and with the hand made like this, <laughs> indicating, you know, here. <laughs> but they wouldn't kill him. You know, in the end, they just took all their belongings. They had a little pack, you know, with some um, a set of spare robes and so on. So they took basically everything they had and the monk was just left with his lower robe, even his sandals, upper robe. Uh, everything had gone. But he, he was alive and also the layman uh, was not killed. So a powerful protection um, when the monk took refuge. Something else that can give protection are the four protective meditations which we have practiced, which we are practicing in this retreat. And so now in this place I'm just going to give a short explanation of these four protective meditations. Our spiritual journey, sorry, our spiritual practice is often compared to a long journey. So in the same way as we set out well prepared to a journey, to go to a distant place, so to have a proper equipment for our spiritual journey is equally important. You know, for a worldly journey, we may take a map, a compass, provisions of food, and maybe a weapon to protect ourselves. And so for our spiritual journey, we need the four protective meditations. They give us the direction, they provide us with food and refreshment, and they protect us from danger and harm. These four protective meditations are, the first one is Buddhanusati, the reflection on the attributes of the Buddha. The second one is the Metta Bhavana, the loving-kindness meditation, cultivation of loving-kindness, friendliness, benevolence. Then the third one is the Asuba Bhavana, the meditation on the non-beauty, the non-beauty of the body. And the fourth one is Maranasati, the reflection on death. So the first of these four protective meditations, namely the reflection on the Buddha's attributes, this increases our confidence, our sadha, and it strengthens our faith that liberation is possible, that it is possible for all. With his example, the Buddha showed that complete liberation of the mind from greed, hatred and delusion that this can put an end to this journey in samsara. And he made it very clear that 
we all have this potential to become fully awakened. Then the second protective meditation is metta meditation. And the cultivation and development of loving kindness fosters a a feeling of benevolence and friendliness towards all living beings. And at the same time, this practice weakens or can remove the fires of anger, aversion, or ill will. And the heart, the mind that radiates metta, loving kindness, knows no limits, no barriers. So there are no limits, no barriers, or no uh, distinctions between close and distant persons, no distinctions between friends and enemies. You know, with the practice, gradually we can get to that place where loving kindness just uh, radiates uh, boundlessly uh, into all directions for all living beings. Then the third protective meditation is the reflection on the non-beauty of the body. And this helps reduce our attachment to the body and it leads to a more realistic understanding of the nature of the body. It can also um, reinforce our commitment to renunciation. And this reflection on the non-beauty of the body can be done with the 32 parts of the body. You know, if one can see this body as a skeleton wrapped up with flesh and skin and which holds urine and feces, blood and pus and mucus floating around, then one is less inclined to identify oneself with this body or less prone to cling to another body. So the purpose of this reflection is to increase the understanding of the true nature of the body. And it's not to arouse feelings of disgust or ill will towards the body. And so with a deeper understanding of the true nature of the body, so this can lead to a firmness and unperturbedness in the case of sickness, in the case of impending death. <clears throat> and then the last of these four protective meditations is the reflection on death. And this makes us realize more clearly the nature of impermanence. Impermanence regarding our life, the fact that we are mortal, the fact that one day we will die, and everybody else too. Makes us understand that the only certainty in our life is the fact that we will die. But when and how and where, we don't know. But it's good to prepare ourselves for this inevitable fact, a fact that surely will happen in our life. And so it's better to prepare us for this fact now as long as we are relatively healthy and well. And so with this reflection, this leads to a sense 
of Samvega, a sense of spiritual urgency. And with this, our priorities in life can become much clearer, realizing what is really important in our life. What do we value? Where do we want to spend our time, our energy? So all these qualities developed through these four protective meditations are very uh, important on our spiritual journey. With them it would be much harder to progress on the, on the way. In our day-to-day life, we can practice these four protective meditations maybe early in the morning or at the beginning of a formal sitting meditation. So then we could spend maybe just two, minute, two minutes on each of these four uh, protections. And by doing so, this is like packing our spiritual day pack. You know, we put into our spiritual day pack the qualities of confidence, of loving kindness. We put in an antidote for clinging, clinging to the body, and a sense of urgency. And so bearing these qualities in mind, they will protect us throughout the day whenever we face a challenging or difficult situation. Another aspect that can bestow protection are the so-called paritas, the protective suttas. There are a number of discourses that are known as the discourses for protection. And in Asian Buddhist countries, these protective suttas are often chanted on a daily basis. They are chanted in monasteries, but also lay people often chant them uh, at home. In Burma, for example, there are 11 paritas, 11 protective suttas. And each day of the week is assigned one or two of these protective suttas. So then, you know, people on Sundays, uh, which is the day of the Mangala Sutta, the discourse on the blessings, so then people would chant the Mangala Sutta on Sunday. Monday is the uh, Ratana Sutta. Tuesday is the day of the Metta Sutta and also the Kanda Sutta. So the protection is obtained by either reciting or listening to these paritas, protective suttas. But for the paritas to manifest their protective power, the recitation or the listening must be done with understanding and confidence. It must be done with intelligence and devotion. The Buddha himself had a sutta, a parita recited to him when he was sick. Or the Buddha recited a parita, namely the Bojanga Sutta, to the venerables Mogalana and Kasapa when they were sick. And by listening carefully and attentively to the sutta, to the parita, the Buddha, as well as Mogalana and Kasapa, they recovered from their sickness. So several factors contribute to the efficacy of the recitation of these paritas. Chanting these protective suttas 
is a form of satchakirya, which means a form of asseveration of truth. So, and the protection results by such, by the power of such an asseveration. So this means to establish oneself in the power of truth, to gain one's end. At the end of the recitation, the reciters bless the listeners with the words Etena satchavachena sotite hotu sabata, which means by the power of the truth of these words, may you ever be well. Whatever the Buddha said and taught throughout his life was done, was done on the basis of loving-kindness and compassion. So whenever his words are recited and repeated, then it should be done with the same pure motivation, the same pure motivation to benefit living beings. And so then the words become imbued with a powerful purity, which in turn then develops into a powerful protection for an attentive and devoted listener. Another factor that adds to the protective force is the actual sound from the recitation or the chant. Usually the sound of the chant is soothing, soothing to the nerves, and so it induces peace and calm of mind, and it brings harmony into the physical system. So by listening to a paritta, or by chanting a paritta oneself with the proper attitude, then one's mind is filled with wholesome mental states. And when the mind is filled with wholesome mental states, then unwholesome or negative mental states are abandoned. And when wholesome mental states are present, then that conduces to well-being, to good health, to prosperity, it conduces finally to liberation. After all I have said in regard to the protective power of the Dhamma, it should have become clear that this power of protection cannot be obtained by remaining passive, by remaining inactive. It's not by sitting in a soft chair, looking out of the window, and then hoping that this protective power will fall into our lap as a present of the heavens. Rather, the protective power can be experienced by wholeheartedly applying the Buddha's teaching, the Dhamma, by wholeheartedly applying it in our life. And as we have seen, there are many possibilities to do so. So, by being mindful, or by going for refuge, or by keeping our conduct, our behavior virtuous, uh, keeping the precepts, or by cultivating the guardians of the world, Hiri and Otapa or by practicing the four protective meditations, or by means of the paritas. So in any case, our wholehearted engagement is crucial to experience 
the protective power of the Dhamma. Now to make a last comment, let's go back to the phrase that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So the protection of oneself and the protection of others correspond to the great twin virtues of Buddhism, the twin virtues of wisdom and compassion, compassion, loving kindness. And so to express it you know, very generally, <clears throat> um, it can be said the protection of oneself relates to wisdom and understanding and the protection of others relates to compassion and kindness. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.